morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. begin by reading something from an unknown author. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeal. He shatters life, With his message, most people hate him, everyone fears him, his name, death. Every tombstone is his pulpit, every newspaper prints his text, and one day, every one of you will be his sermon. Death is 100% fatal. Death is no respecter of persons. We've seen some high-profile people recently die. Michael Jackson, Farrah Fawcett. Yesterday it was Steve McNair. Death is the ultimate leveler. doesn't matter what your economic status is or social status is or physical status is. Death levels Everyone. Doesn't matter if you're Michael Jackson or John Doe. There is no question about the inevitability of death. Death is a certainty, death is a given. The question is how do you view death? Now, most people don't like to talk about death except in a clinical sense. I almost died or sort of an abstract sense, this is killing me. When it comes to death, most people try to place it in the area of fantasy rather than reality. And even when a friend or loved one dies, we often have that little voice in our head that says, it'll never happen to me. Most people are escapists, ignoring the pressing reality of death. And most people fill their lives with noise and action and hope that somehow death is going to pass them by. Jackson Brown was one of my favorite singer-songwriters because he didn't ignore a lot of topics. And he wrote a song called For a Dancer that describes the way most people try to escape the reality of death. Part of the words go like this. 
I don't know what happens when people die. Can't seem to grasp it as hard as I try. It's like a song I can hear playing right in my ear, but I can't say. I can't help listening. And I can't help feeling stupid standing round. Crying is the easier down, because I know that you'd rather we were dancing, dancing our sorrow away. Go right on dancing, no matter what fate chooses to play. Just do the steps that you've been shown by everyone you've ever known until the dance becomes your very own. But no matter how close to yours another's steps have grown, in the end, there is one dance you'll do alone. You can attempt to dance your life away, but in the end, there is one dance you'll do alone, and that's death. So how do you view death? Well, in the last paragraph of chapter 15, this chapter about resurrection, the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, let's talk about death. And we're going to look at what he has to say in three parts. Your transformation, your triumph, and your transition. First of all, your transformation we see in verses 50 to 53. Notice verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now this is really a summary of what Paul has said in verses 35 to 49. The kingdom of God is eternal and imperishable. And we cannot get into it in these bodies. We've got to be transformed. We've got to be different. It is an imperishable kingdom, and we need imperishable bodies. He made that point very clear in verses 42 to 44. He said, it is sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And in verse 49, he says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Our resurrection bodies will not be earthy. They will be heavenly. We must be changed from this body into that body that will be suitable for that kingdom. And, and Paul's point in this chapter was that just like a seed goes into the ground and dies and then comes out a beautiful plant, our bodies die and are buried in the ground and will come out in our resurrection bodies. You say, well, how is this whole thing going to work? And what about people who don't die and don't get buried in the ground like a seed? How's it going to work for them? Well, look at verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, the word mystery in the Bible means something that could never be known apart from God revealing it to us. A better word would probably be secret because you're never going to discover it on your own, but God tells us about it. And so Paul says, let me let you in on a secret. What is it? 
We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's a verse for the nursery. We will not all sleep. We will not all, as Christians, die. In fact, there will be a generation of Christians who will not die. But whether a Christian dies or stays alive until the coming of Christ, he says we will all be changed. We will all be transformed from this earthy body to that heavenly body. And when will it happen? Look at verse 52. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. It will happen in a moment. That word moment is an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word atomos, from which we get our word atom, A-T-O-M, that which cannot be divided. And so it will happen in the smallest possible particle of time. It's not a process. It's not a long, drawn-out metamorphosis. It's not an evolutionary cycle. You are going to be transformed in the briefest moment of time. And so if you're alive when Jesus comes back, don't get all worked up about watching yourself change because you're not going to see it. It's not like those cheap werewolf movies. You know, you're gradually... It's going to happen in in an atom of time. And then to, to emphasize the speed of it, he says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. What's that mean? I used to have a girlfriend in college who used to sit around blinking her eyes. And I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm hoping Jesus will come back because he's coming in the twinkling of an eye. That's poor interpretation. One man suggests the twinkling of an eye, the twinkling of the eye is the time it takes for light to travel from the iris to the retina. Apparently a scientist measured it and said it's one-sixth of a nanosecond. You know what a second is, one Mississippi. A microsecond is one millionth of a second. A nanosecond is one thousandth of a microsecond. And this will happen in one-sixth of a nanosecond. So one-sixth of one thousandth of one millionth of a second. That's quick. Or if you want to look at it a different way, light travels 186,000 miles a second. Light passes the moon in a second and a half. So one Mississippi, one, boom, past the moon. Imagine how fast light travels between two points in your eyeball. You see, Paul is saying that we're going to be transformed in a hurry. It's going to happen fast. And then he adds that it will happen at the last trumpet. 
We were in Israel recently. You knew I was going to use illustrations from Israel, right? They have ram's horns over there everywhere. And I never tried to, to get any sound out of them, but others did pretty well at it, and others didn't. But the, horn, the trumpet, the, the, the ram's horn in Scripture was used many times when you read in the Old Testament to announce the gathering of God's people together. It might be for war, it might be for worship, whatever it means. It was to rally God's people together. And here we're told that there's going to be a trumpet sound when God assembles his people together. And how's it going to happen? Look at verse 52 again. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The trumpet is going to sound... The dead will be raised from the graves in imperishable bodies, and those of us who are still alive will be changed, transformed in a moment, an atom of time, the twinkling of an eye. Now, this is spoken of in other places in Scripture. Jesus said in John 14, 2, in that familiar passage, "...in my Father's house are many dwelling places." If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If you're a Christian, we are not looking for an event. We are looking for a person. Jesus said, I went away to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again personally to get you and take you there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, interestingly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is written to people who were concerned about those who had died. What's going to happen to them? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the end of the chapter is written to those who are concerned about those who are still alive. So you have these two passages that balance that out. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, there it is, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Why do the dead rise first? Some people suggest it's because they have a little further to go. Although they... They bury on top of the ground in New Orleans. In fact, I was in Israel recently. And they bury in caves many times. So there isn't six more feet to go. So why do the dead rise first? I don't know. Maybe they've been waiting longer. The Lord said, I'm going to get you first. 
But since it happens in one-sixth of a nanosecond, you're going to not notice the difference. Only the Lord will. The point is clear. If you are dead, when Jesus comes back, you're going to be raised into an imperishable body. If you are still alive, you're going to be changed into an imperishable body. And that day must come. Verse 53 says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. God's plan is for you to be in his kingdom forever. And for you to be there forever, you have to have a forever body to be there. And that's what he's talking about here. These perishable bodies will be changed into imperishable bodies. These mortal bodies will be changed into immortal bodies. So Paul's first point is, he says, let me tell you a secret. Not all believers will die, but all will be changed, transformed into eternal bodies. That's the transformation. Secondly, we see your triumph in verses 54 to 57. Notice verse 54, and I want you to notice the when and the then in this verse. So when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. When Jesus comes back and we're changed into imperishable, immortal bodies, then the statement of Isaiah 25, 8 will be realized, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, that's an interesting analogy because it appears today that death swallows up us up. But in that day, death is going to be swallowed up. It will do no more damage, and even the apparent victories that it seems to have over people will be reversed in that day. Revelation 20.14 says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, swallowed up. Revelation 21.4 says, And there shall no longer be any death, swallowed up and drowned, gone. Now, what does that mean to you? Well, Paul goes on here to taunt death. He does a little trash talking in verse 55. Notice what he says. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And that's a paraphrase of Hosea 13, 14. We do not have to be afraid of death. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. And the sting he's talking about here is the sting of a bee. I did a little research on bees. It says that the only bees that can sting you are female. You make the application. Or maybe that was wasps. I was reading about both. Got, got a little carried away. But, but bees on their stinger have a little barb so that when they sting you and pull away, the stinger stays inside of you. In fact, just for your information, if you get stung by a bee, 
they say it's good to get that barb out of there as quick as you can because it keeps shooting poison into you for about a minute. But when a bee stings you, he only stings once because he puts his stinger in, and when he pulls out, the barb catches your skin, and it pulls him out or pulls out of him. And so in reality for the believer, this is a great analogy, death stung Christ on the cross, put its stinger into Christ on the cross, and he experienced the full penalty for your sin. And when the death pulled out, the stinger stayed there, and death has no more stinger to sting you. Ever been driving in your car and you find out you got a wasp or a bee in there? I don't like them. You know, you kind of panic and you end up almost hitting cars just to, to get rid of it. Well, that, death is a bee that can buzz around your head and annoy you and threaten you, but the reality is it has no stinger. It has no venom. Why not? Well, Paul goes on to interpret in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin. Now, it's not really death that harms you. Death invades our world. It, it buzzes around. We have to dodge it. We have to recover from what it does. But it really never harms us unless there's sin there. Wherever there is sin, death can deal a fatal blow. Wherever sin is forgiven, paid for, and removed, death has no sting. So if you are a believer, there is no sting in death because the sting of death is sin, and our sin has been removed. So how do we view death? It buzzes around, makes a lot of noise, threatens us, but can't sting us. Why not? Because Jesus took the sting of death. That's why Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, there is no sin in your account. The Bible tells us that God has forgiven your sin. He remembers your sin no more. He has buried it in the deepest sea. It is as far as the east is from the west. 1 John 2.12 says, Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There is no sin there. So for the Christian, there's no sin, therefore there's no sting. Now, that doesn't mean you don't commit sin. It means that your sin is forgiven and your sin is covered. You see, death already killed once for your sin. And who did it kill? Killed Christ. And that's all. It's done. It's over. And then he goes on to tell us a little more. He says, and the power of sin is the law. Now, that may sound a little confusing to you. What's he saying? The law of God gives sin power. Sounds a little strange on the surface. The law makes the sting worse. How? Well, a couple ways. You see, if God didn't have any principles, then we couldn't break them. 
There's a great verse in Romans 4.15. It says, where there is no law, there is no violation. If God was up in heaven saying, I don't care what you do, then there would be no accountability for sin and there would be no judgment for sin. But the law really gives sin its power because the law damns our sin. But there's a second idea to that, and that is that sin uses the law to produce more sin. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, it's, Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. See, the law was never established so that you would keep it. The Bible tells us the law was given to show you your sin. It's like a mirror. It shows you how sinful you are. And it's actually like a spoon because it comes in. You ever have sludge in the bottom of a cup of water that you're about to drink? Bad analogy. But let's call it chocolate syrup. You take your spoon and you stir it, and what happens? It comes to the top. Well, that's what the law does with sin. It stirs it up in our lives. Paul said, I, would not, I didn't think about coveting until the law said, you can't covet. And then I said, wow, I'm going to try that. And he tried it. That's why when you go by a park bench that says wet paint, what do you see? Fingerprints. You know, people say, oh, really? Try this. Try this. If you, you got a dirt, let your car get real dirty and then put a little you know, piece of paper with a note there on your car saying, don't write, wash me on my car and see what happens. Or better yet, just put a sign in your yard that says, don't throw eggs at my house and see what happens. You see, the law draws the rebellion and sin out of us. And so when we're talking about uh, death's thing, being worse because of the law, it's because the law really produces even more sin in us, and the law condemns us because of our sin. But having said all of that, then he says this in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great statement. I can't remove the sting of death. I can't do anything to eliminate my sin. But thanks be to God that he has done that through Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus paid for our sin. The Lord Jesus fulfilled the law. He has given us the victory over death. I was sitting in a restaurant recently and, and uh, eating, and I, uh, there was a fellow... Uh, sitting maybe 20 feet away from me. And I was reading, and all of a sudden he jumped up and he said, We won! And I realized there was an NBA playoff game on. And he was a Cleveland Cavaliers fan. And what's his name, uh, James? What's his name? LeBron James made a last-second shot. Well, I didn't even know there was a game on. But this guy, I mean, he's in a restaurant full of people, but he's watching... 
watching the TV, and he immediately just starts jumping up and down saying, we won. Now, it's interesting. He only won because he's a Cleveland Cavalier fan. I mean, he's sitting there eating, eating appetizers and relaxing, but Cleveland won. LeBron James won, but he could say we won because he was identified with that team. That's the way it is for you and me. Jesus did all the work. Jesus won, but because I have faith in Jesus Christ, because I am identified with him, guess what? I get to say, we won. And there is no greater celebration. We're, we celebrated yesterday our independence. Well, there's no greater celebration than to say, I have victory over sin and over death, and I have been blessed with eternal life. That's worth shooting some fireworks about. You know, even when a Christian dies, there is no defeat. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. Death is nothing for a Christian. Death is graduation day. It simply takes me into the presence of the Lord. We have victory over it. We are triumphant over it in Christ. Benjamin Franklin wrote his own epitaph, and it said this, The body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its content taken out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. That's the way we can look at death. It's not defeat, it's victory. Death is disarmed, defanged, declawed, and destroyed. And so Paul says, thanks be to God. Which brings us to the third point, and that is your transition. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren. Now, when Paul gets lovey-dovey, watch out. He says, beloved brethren, I got a therefore now. On the basis of what I just said, here's what I want you to do. Since you are going to be transformed, and since you are triumphant over death, it has no stinger, here's how you are to live in the transition between now and your transformation. And he touches on two things. The first is doctrinally, and the second is practically. First of all, doctrinally, he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. The word steadfast means literally to be seated. Being settled and firmly situated. And the second word, immovable, means be motionless and don't budge. He is saying doctrinally, I want you to be settled, fixed, solid. Don't let these ones he mentioned in verse 12 of this chapter who are teaching that there is no resurrection shake you off your foundation. You are to sit firmly on the truth of God and don't move. That's the exhortation doctrinally. Then he gives an exhortation practically 
in verse 58. And notice this. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Doctrinally, you are to sit still. Practically, you are not to sit still. He says you are to be abounding. That's a word that means overflowing, overdoing. It has the idea of exceeding the requirements. In fact, it's the word used in Ephesians 1.8 where it says God has lavished, that's the way it's translated, God has lavished on us the riches of his grace. Now listen to me carefully. Because God has abundantly overdone himself for us, to whom he owes nothing, we should abundantly overdo ourselves for him, to whom we owe everything. What should I be doing in the transition? I should be overdoing it in the work of God. People are always telling you, you need to slow down. No, you need to overdo it. In Ephesians chapter, or Philippians chapter 2, there's a guy by the name of Epaphroditus, and it says he worked himself sick to the point of death for the work of Christ. That's a great endorsement. He burned himself out working for Christ. And when are we to do this? Always. There are no vacations from the work of Christ. When you go on vacation, you're still serving him. If you need a rest, you can rest when you get to heaven. And what motivates you? Look at the end of verse 58. Knowing, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Does the Lord know you're working hard? Well, he calls it toil here. Does that sound real encouraging? I'm going to go out and toil. It means you're working hard. You're laboring. Probably nobody's noticing what you're doing. Nobody's patting you on the back. You're toiling in the work of the Lord. And he says, your work is not in vain. Why? Because death is not the end. Because God has an eternal plan for you. Michael Jackson had been rehearsing for his This Is It tour. Fifty concerts that were touted to be the greatest, one of the greatest musical events in history. Well, death put an end to it. Death said, this is it. And all his work preparing for those concerts was in vain. But when you are doing the work of the Lord in whatever capacity, no matter how big or how small, that's something death cannot stop. Death cannot erase. Everything you do has eternal significance. So sit still on the word of God and his promises and keep abounding in the work of the Lord. My son ran track as a sprinter, and he was always taught when he got to the finish line to run through it. Didn't slow down at the finish line. That wasn't the stopping point. He ran through the finish line. 
And that's really what Paul is telling us here. We're to finish strong. Because we know that death is not an end. It's just really the beginning of our eternal uh, personal relationship with the Lord. We are to run through the finish line and finish strong. That's our challenge this morning. That's how we are to view death as believers. I'm going to have the praise team come back up as we reflect on how God has spoken to you today. And as we reflect on that, let's sing together in worship to the Lord. Let's stand as we close.